Last Sunday, I preached about the life and the legacy of our famous Unitarian ancestor, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. When Holmes died in 1935, his obituary was featured on the front page of the New York Times under the headline, Chief Liberal. But as we explored last week, although he did occasionally help lead the court to a strong defense of civil liberties and individual freedom, he was not often as progressive as his admirers like to let themselves think. His most illiberal opinion, Buck versus Bell, was not even mentioned in that New York Times obituary. And as I mentioned last week, we're not even going to get into it because I knew it would take at least another sermon to um, begin to dig into that. In 1927, only 90 years ago, Justice Holmes wrote the majority opinion in the Supreme Court case, Buck versus Bell. The full name of that case was Carrie Buck versus John Hendon Bell, the superintendent of the state colony for epileptics and the feeble-minded. In this infamous decision, our nation's highest court upheld as constitutional a state law in Virginia allowing the compulsory sterilization of United States citizens deemed unfit to reproduce. In the annals of Supreme Court history, this case has been called the highest ratio of injustice per word uh, ever signed on to by eight Supreme Court justices. The opinion's actually barely more than a thousand words long, so certainly read it in full if you'd like. Here's just one paragraph to give you a sense of its tone. Holmes wrote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute the degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccinations is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. I'll read that last little leap of logic again. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. He concludes, three generations of imbeciles is enough. He had that gift for cutting phrases and aphorisms, and here he used it again, as we saw last week. He sometimes used that for good, and sometimes he used it for evil, essentially. Among the eight justices signing in support of this decision were Holmes' fellow Unitarian Chief Justice um, William Howard Taft, as well as the progressive uh, Jewish Justice uh, Louis Brandeis. In reconstructing how this eight-to-one decision was formed, it was no great surprise that some of the justices signed on to Holmes's opinion. Chief Justice Taft had already lent his name to promoting eugenic ideas. The frankly bigoted and mean-spirited Justice McReynolds, who would not even sit next to the Jewish Justice Brandeis, again, might well have been expected to support eugenics. The same could be said, frankly, for Justice Van Devanter, who reportedly joined McReynolds in asking the president not to, quote, afflict the court with another Jewish member. Justices Sutherland and Stone, exposed in college to intellectual mentors with strong uh, social Darwinist beliefs, could also, that would also help explain their votes. The sole no vote came from Justice Butler, the only Roman Catholic on the court at the time, but even he just said no. He didn't write a dissenting opinion that would help set the stage for potentially uh, overturning Buck versus Bell. 
And although there are some indications that Brandeis was troubled with his decision, uh, it's actually, a, a, if you read biographies of Brandeis, they basically, like, don't talk about it. Because uh, we, we only have sort of passing indications that Brandeis was troubled. Uh, Holmes was not troubled. He said very clearly, Buck versus Bell was one of those decisions that I wrote that gave me pleasure. For the most part, newspapers as well as major medical and legal publications supported this decision. The New York Times reported it on page 19 alongside a story about Harvard's decision to build a new dining hall. The front page was filled with stories that the editors apparently considered more significant, like a 222-year-old tree being cut down in New Haven, Connecticut to allow for street widening. So cutting down a tree more significant than cutting Carrie Buck's fallopian tubes. At the time, one of the more prominent voices to denounce the decision was the governor of Pennsylvania who said publicly that involuntary sterilization was to inflict a cruelty upon a helpless class in the community which the state has undertaken to protect. So why bring all this up today? To be honest, there are strong parallels between the language and the logic that have been going on in recent um, weeks and months around both health care and immigration and those that led to the 1927 Supreme Court decision of Buck versus Bell. Uh, this case is also a challenge uh, of wrestling with the ways in the past that well-intentioned liberals can sometimes act unintentionally illiberally. And exploring the ways that we have gone wrong in the past can perhaps help us um, avoid repeating those mistakes in the present and the future. The term eugenics derives from the Greek word eu and genos, uh, meaning good, well, as well as race or stock or kin. Uh, it refers to the various approaches of controlling human breeding, so to speak, to favor so-called desirable characteristics. As with many ethical dilemmas, the crucial question to ask is not just what's fair, but who decides? Who decides, who gets to choose what's desirable? What are their motivations and to what end? The short answer is that many eugenicists either implicitly or often explicitly were motivated by white supremacy, including many liberals who understood themselves to be progressives. The scary part is that many of these progressives perceived their support for eugenics as I'm just following the so-called objective dictates of science, right? I don't want to do this. It's just what science says. But they were unable to see the ways that in truth their white privilege, their economic privilege, their elite status, and other related factors biased their understandings and perceptions of science. Wrestling with the history of Buck versus Bell is also a troubling reminder that the Nazis were not the only proponents of eugenics in the first half of the 20th century. Rather, the Nazi party used America as a model for its own eugenic sterilization program. And at the Nuremberg trials after World War II, the Nazis cited Buck versus Bell in defense of their actions. Consider that John D. Rockefeller, the oil magnate and the world's wealthiest man at the time, donated generously to scientific research into breeding out, in his words, the defective human. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, he was also chairman of the board of the scientific directors of the Eugenics Record Office in upstate New York, the leading organization advocating eugenic sterilization. Former President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, said publicly that the unfit must be, quote, forbidden to leave offspring behind them. 
when Connecticut, of all places, enacted the nation's first eugenic law in 1895, it was a ban on certain marriages. When that happened, the American Bar Association's president praised it as a necessary, quote, practical deterrent that government must prevent unhealthy progeny to protect future generations from the evil operations of the laws of heredity. At the American Academy of Medicine's first meeting of the 20th century in 1900, its president argued that our current practice of medicine is actually counterproductive. He said, quote, we prolong the lives of weaklings and make it possible for them to transmit their characteristics on to future generations. Eugenics was taught at 376 universities and colleges in this nation, including Harvard, Columbia, Berkeley, and Cornell. Prominent professors were outspoken in support. The feminist Margaret Sanger, rightly celebrated for opening our nation's first birth control clinic in 1916, was also a prominent eugenicist. That was part of how she wanted birth control to be used. I could go on. There are many, many more examples. I trust those will suffice. But I wanted us to explore this topic not only because of the history of progressives generally supporting eugenics in this country, but also because the more I researched the history of the eugenics movement in the United States, the more I kept stumbling upon the names of Unitarians and Universalists, and not only the aforementioned Supreme Court justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and William Howard Taft. One significant example includes the Unitarian minister John Haynes Holmes, who is rightly remembered for his progressive activism, uh, his principled pacifism. In that case, it was actually against Taft. There's this whole Taft-Holmes debate that um, I'll go into at a future point. But Holmes also helped form a eugenics committee of the Liberal Ministers Association in New York. One of their goals was to encourage their fellow ministers to only perform what were then called health marriages. That is, marriages that were thought to be a proper union that would lead to desirable offspring. Another example is the Reverend Philip Osgood. He was an Episcopalian at the time that he won the 1926 Eugenics Sermon Contest. Uh, He later became a Unitarian. In addition to Unitarian and Universalist, many other progressive ministers are part of the eugenics movement. Uh, Harry Harry Emerson Fosdick at uh, Riverside Church in New York eugenicist, including, he was a little more subtle about it, but also active. Also including a number, a notable number of uh, reformed Jewish rabbis were also part of the eugenics movement. In support of the eugenics movement, though, I think it's important to say it wasn't just like in the South. Certainly a lot, I'm from South Carolina, a lot of racism comes from the South. Eugenics, though, frankly, it was progressives, it was intellectuals, and it was professionals that supported it. Uh, people who strongly believed in the science of Darwinian evolution and wanted to use the modern science to try to shape society for the better. To consider a map of the United States in 1913, the 12 states at that point that had passed eugenic sterilization laws were an interesting collection. Indiana, Washington, California, Connecticut, Nevada, Iowa, New Jersey, and New York, North Dakota, Michigan, and Kansas. So-called defective traits that were potential targets for compulsory compulsory, um, sterilization included epilepsy, uh, criminality, alcoholism, or dependency, by which they meant poverty. Their greatest target, though, was was people who were purportedly feeble-minded. In particular, women were targeted for this. 
Some of those uh, state laws uh, began to be struck down on equal protection and on due process grounds. That was one of the reasons that proponents of eugenics started to look for a test case and, and ran uh, the Kerry Buck case as quickly as, and railroaded it through the system. And that's one of the reasons why 1927's Kerry, I mean, Buck versus Bell decision was so tragic, because it reversed that trend of overturning these state laws based on due process and equal protection grounds. Uh, the truth is that um, from his elite Boston Brahmin perspective, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. looked down on Carrie Buck, looked down on her mother, looked down on her child, and judged them with that infamous sentence that three generations of imbeciles are enough. The truth is that Carrie Buck's family on her father's side had been relatively prosperous um, property owners and slaveholders, actually, before the Civil War, but their family had been on a downward economic trajectory ever since the end of the Civil War. The story, and Carrie had ended up in foster care. The story that Carrie's foster parents told about her is that she became pregnant at 17 because her, her alleged feeble-mindedness led her to have loose morals that caused her to be pregnant. Uh, Carrie's side of the story, which she never had a chance to tell in court, was that her foster mother's nephew had forced himself on her. So by institutionalizing Carrie, it, the foster family seemingly was seeking to protect their nephew from ever being, from the rape ever being discovered. Both Carrie and her mother were therefore deemed to be feeble-minded using the Binet-Simon so-called intelligence test. It turns out if you go back and ask the people who designed the Binet-Simon test, they said, you're using it in a way we never designed it to be used. As part of proving how broken this test was, they tested everyone in the United States Army. Half of them proved to be of, you know, should be institutionalized according to this test. So we're like, okay, half the Army is not actually feeble-minded. So let's, uh, there's something wrong with this test. Uh, Carrie's daughter Vivian was even more absurdly evaluated to be feeble-minded at only six months of age. The, tr the Supreme Court questioned none of this. The truth is that Carrie did well academically, made it to the sixth grade before her foster parents forced her to quit, seemingly so she could help more around the house. And although her daughter Vivian died tragically from a stomach infection following measles at age eight, when we look at the school records that we still have about her, she seems to be a quite average student and perfectly normal, unlike what people said about her when she was six months old. Carrie herself died in 1983 at age 76. We still have many letters that she wrote. Um, they are neatly written. They are well composed. They are thoughtful. She was known to read the newspaper daily and to do crossword puzzles. If Carrie Buck was guilty of anything, it was being female in a sexist society. It was being poor in a classist society. And it was trusting the system uh, and trusting experts uh, who turned out to be patriarchal, arrogant, and elitist. By 1931, four years after Buck versus Bell, 28 of our nation's 48 states had laws authorizing eugenic sterilization. It was not until two years after those, that was the truth in 1931 in the United States, it was not until two years later in 1933 that Nazi Germany passed its law for the prevention of hereditarily diseased offspring, which would be enforced by its um, hereditary health courts, nor did the trend stop with the United States and Germany. Denmark enacted forced sterilization of so-called mental defectives in 1934. Sweden and Norway also enacted sterilization laws in 1934, followed by Finland in 1935, Estonia in 1936, and by Iceland in 1938. 
Seemingly, it took the extremes of Nazism and the Holocaust to taint eugenics as unethical. I really do ask if, wonder that if Hitler had never existed, what eugenics laws would be like in the United States today. We don't know, we, don't, we can't know that counterfactual, but it's a, it's a real question of history. That being said, Buck versus Bell has never been overturned in the United States of America, and it is not one of those archaic laws that are still on the books but have no negative impact. In 2001, Margaret Vaughn, a young woman who had been labeled mildly mentally retarded, sued Columbia County, Missouri for trying to force her to be sterilized. In Vaughn versus Ruoff, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit explained that involuntary sterilization is, quote, not always unconstitutional. As an authority, they cited Buck versus Bell. More recently, the news broke in 2013 that as recently as 2010, some officials in California had been forcibly coercing female inmates to get sterilized. In 2014, a former state senator in Arizona was forced to resign the vice chairmanship of his political party after he publicly called for the sterilization of women on public assistance. Good that he was publicly shamed for that. Bad that he was still advocating for these things in 2014. In 2015, the news broke that Nashville Nashville prosecutors were making sterilization part of plea deals for female defendants. 2015. In 2016, echoes of eugenic uh, eugenic arguments have been strongly present in debates around immigration and health care. I don't think people realize that, but it's it's the ignorance of our history that allows us to do to Muslims and use that same language of what was so clearly already done to Catholics and the Irish and the Italians. And to it's, we're just repeating the same things over and over again instead of seeing the pattern. These issues are still with us, and they will be even more so in coming decades as the science of genetic engineering continues to advance. Uh, Along these lines, I do hope to facilitate a class here at UUCF on bioethics. And I will certainly agree that 21st century, with 21st century bioethics, there are legitimate, messy, and complex ethical quandaries. But part of the problem with eugenics is that it's almost always been based on bad science. Even before Buck versus Bell, geneticists had begun to speak out and say, eugenicists, you're actually misunderstanding the science of genetics. During human reproductions, genes combine and are expressed in complex, unpredictable ways. And intelligence, indolence, dependency, and these other um, human qualities that eugenicists were trying to target, they are not what geneticists call unit characteristics. They are not things that pass down in a predictable single gene way from parent to child. Said more simply, it is neither true that brilliant parents always produce brilliant children, or that so-called less intelligent parents always produce less intelligent children, or that criminals always produce criminals, or that people whose family have never broken the law or never got and caught, uh, you know, produce, uh, won't produce criminals or whatever. It's just not, it's much more complicated and messy than that. In particular, eugenicists almost always failed to account for demoralizing social conditions. The ways that poverty, lack of access to education and healthcare are much more likely to cause negative social outcomes than genetics. As you use our fifth source includes the guidance of reason and the results of science. And science is one of the reasons that I am a Unitarian Universalist. I I truly believe in balancing the wisdom of the world's religions with the insights of modern science. But I also believe in our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. 
period. And that comes from the preamble of the United Nations um, Declaration of Human Rights. And to me, it's incredibly significant that, uh, that Unitarian Universalism has chosen as our first principle that UN uh, Declaration of Human Rights principle, which was written in the wake of World War II, uh, out of the wake of some of the worst things that human beings do to one another. I've been told I haven't, that the, I don't think the United States has ever signed the UN Declaration of Human Rights, if I, which is troubling and not surprising. So something to wrestle with as well. Unitarian Universalism is known as a liberal religion from the Latin root libere, meaning free. And at the heart of classical liberalism is the equal right of every individual to choose how to think or act. Now, there are important caveats like the, you know, the saying that my right to swing my fist ends when it hits your face and vice versa. Uh, but I can think of few things more intrusive to an individual's privacy than involuntary sterilization. Such an act is a strong step toward, I don't know any other word for it, than totalitarianism, which is the belief that the state should have total control over what happens to an individual and their body. The challenge of eugenics in the early 20th century is that it was precisely progressive reformers who perceived themselves as acting in the best interests of society who instead acted illiberally. And they did it in the name of efficiency, they did it in the name of expertise, and they did it in the name of science. Many of these illiberal progressives saw themselves as, I'm just following in the footsteps of Charles Darwin's evolutionary um, biology. But a close reading of Darwin shows otherwise. In chapter 5 of The Descent of Man, Darwin shows that he was well aware of the implications of his theory of natural selection for what later came to be called eugenics. He confesses, I understand the temptation, but he cautions his readers that we cannot, quote, check our sympathy even at the urging of hard reason without deterioration of the noblest parts of our nature. He says, the surgeon may harden himself while performing an, an, an operation because he knows that he's causing pain, but doing it for the good of the patient. But Darwin concludes, if we were to intentionally neglect the weak and the helpless, it could only be for contingent benefit, and it would be with the overwhelming presence of evil. And so as we wrestle with this, as we wrestle with how do we balance reason and the wisdom of ethics, and how do we you know, use reason and science, but use it responsibly, I invite you to rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1038, whose lyrics speak to some of this. Wake now, my senses. We'll sing... 298, wake now my senses. We'll sing the first three verses. Say just a few more things. In many ways, as I said in the sermon, the science is one of the reasons that I'm a Unitarian Universalist, that we, um, Michael Dowd, the evolutionary evangelist that spoke here a few, a year or two ago, you know, talks about moving from a flat earth faith to an evolutionary religion. You know, it says that we shouldn't be talking about BC as before Christ, we should talk about BC as before Copernicus. You know, and as some of you have heard me say before, Darwinism was the great intellectual struggle of the late 19th and early 20th century. It is not the great intellectual struggle of the early 20th century. So, and, and it makes me sad that there are still places where it is debated as if it were undecided science. So all that is true, and we need to balance um, science with the wisdom of the world's religions and great ethical teachings. Uh, two quick examples that I'll leave you with. Um, 
um, there's a great story of, you know, the uh, ironic story, more than great, um, um, of the one of the eugenicists who wrote a really landmark book about eugenics discovered the year after that book was published, he had, well, he didn't discover, he had his first epileptic seizure. And so what does that mean? All of a sudden you've been advocating for epileptics to get sterilized that you all of a sudden have an epileptic seizure. Or I don't know if you've been watching the um, show uh, Man in the High Castle that's about what if um, Germany and Japan had won World War II. And so part of what's happening is there's a... Uh, just, I will not tell you what happens with this subplot, but there's a really moving subplot with a guy named John Smith. So, you know, good American name that is, of course, now in the Nazi army. He was in the U.S. Army and now is in the, uh, the Nazi party in the United States since they control the eastern half of the U.S. in this Philip K. Dick version. Uh, if any of you watch, if you knew Philip K. Dick's a science fiction writer, it's not until, like, the very last moment of the first season that this big switch happens, and you're like, oh, now I see why it's a Philip K. Dick story. Uh, so I will not spoil that for you, but the, uh, the John, it, does, it is coming, though. But it's, it's a really moving subplot that John Smith, who's been really righteous for all of this Nazi stuff, his son is diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. And so then wrestling with that, this 13-year-old who's really bright and vibrant. Um, and, of course, what these hereditary laws call for is euthanasia. You know, we need, you're going to be a burden on society. So anyway, there's many examples where we can see what is it that opens people's hearts and expands their concentric circles to say it's not just about you. It's trying to say, how do we take care of everybody, right? And there's, there really is enough for everyone's need. There's just not enough for everyone's greed. And so as we continue this place, you know, continue to go into the days and weeks to come, you know, continue to use reason, continue to learn about science, but also continue your journey with love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love or peace or joy, that goes with you out in the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving.